All right, well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's John. Very grateful uh, to be with you this morning and uh, to have the, the privilege of pastoring here. Um, we have been in a series on Genesis 2 and 3 for the past several months, and uh, so I want to just remind us a little bit of where we are in that series. We, looked, we spent uh, uh, five or so weeks looking at Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 is this uh, really encouraging passage uh, it's all this hope and, and all this optimism. There are humans that are created. God pushes, a, pushes away the desert, creates a space, creates humans, puts them up on this mountain garden in a place where they can be with him. And it's this picture in, in the Bible, in the language of the Bible, of heaven coming to earth, people being very close to God, and all this potential, all this hope, all this optimism. And so uh, we might wonder, how come our world doesn't look like that? If we look around our world today, that's not the story of our world. And I was just thinking back to uh, when I started pastoring, which was uh, maybe in 2019, just before the pandemic. And I think in 2019, we might have, people might be like, you know, we kind of live in a, in a Genesis 2 world. Everything's looking up. The world could be great. And four short years later, I don't think anyone feels that way about our world. We're like, what has happened? Uh, and so Genesis 3 starts to answer that question for us a little bit. Why is our world the way it is? Why is it not uh, a place that is, that is full of potential and optimism and hope? And it introduces us to two characters very specifically. These are two characters who have a lot of potential. There's first a snake. And in the, in the Genesis 3, it says the snake is the most arum character, which is an ambiguous word in Hebrew. It could mean that the snake is going to be the most wise of all the creatures, or the snake could be the most deceptive. And it's a question, which path will the, will the snake choose? And it chooses the path of becoming deceptive, of becoming a chaos monster. And it releases chaos and temptation into the world. And then this snake meets uh, another elevated character in the story. It's a human. And humans are given this amazing amount of potential as well. It says in Genesis 1 and 2 that we are like royal priests. We are like God. We are elevated creatures. And so will the human choose to, to live into that identity, to become a creature that looks like God, or will it choose the path of the snake? And it chooses the path of the snake. And, and the Bible says that this starts the, the rolling consequences that spill out even onto us today. And so the rest of Genesis 3 talks about what happens because of the failure. And so there's four sections, or I've broken it down into four sections of what happens. So verse 7, there's a realization for the people after they uh, fail at the tree, after they fail the test. There's a realization that they are naked, it says, and they cover themselves up. We'll look at that a little bit this morning. Then there's a, a conversation that the people have with God. Gareth will lead, that, lead us through that next week as we start Advent. And then there's a poem where God speaks and he pronounces both curses and consequences. Mitch led us through the curses last week, and we'll start in on the consequences this week, and then we'll close our series right before Christmas by looking at the people as they get kicked out of the garden. So that's the rest of, of where we're headed and the rest of Genesis 3, and it's really important as we continue to look at Genesis 3 today, you know, it's a, it's a good passage for a day like today, kind of like just a foggy, not-so-nice day outside. We're in a good passage for that. But it's really important that we remind ourselves that Genesis 3 comes after Genesis 2 in, in the story of the Bible. That, that, as Mitch said last week, we are looking at not a simple story, but a complicated one. And so we have all this potential and hope, and then we have the loss of that. But of course, this is not the end of the story, but we do need to sit in it to understand where the story goes. So I'm going to read this passage for us, and then we're going to take a look at a few verses this morning. We're starting in Genesis 3, 14. 
in the, the poem of curse and consequence. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. So this, this serpent, which is the most arum, now becomes the most cursed. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Instead of being elevated, instead of going up, which was a possibility, the snake is now going down. Verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pain and you will bear children with painful effort. We'll be looking at this verse today. Continues, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So we're going to skip this statement and we're going to come back to it in two weeks. It kind of deserves its own uh, week, I think. And for us as 21st century people who are like, wow, the gender stuff is just wild in this passage. If that's you, thanks for sticking with us. Come back in two weeks. It's like a multi-level marketing thing. It's like you came today. If you want the full meal deal, come back in two weeks. It continues on, you will eat from it, or sorry, uh, and then he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. Again, as Mitch mentioned last week, the ground is, the, the land is a character in the story of the Bible, and it bears consequences, curse, from what we do and don't do. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. This is God's word. Now, before we get into the passage, um, a little bit of a, a caution, a little Surgeon General's warning um, here this morning. Um, for some of us, we're going to be looking through these consequences, and, and you're just going to take it in as information. It's like information for you, and you'll be able to just engage in it in basically like an analytical type of way. But for others of us, uh, that won't be how we engage in it. Because these consequences aren't just something that's happening out there or something that happened in a story 3,000 years ago, but they're very real and very personal uh, to, to you and to us today. And so if that's you, um, and, and uh, this is a very difficult passage for you, first, I just want to acknowledge that. And secondly, I just want to say, you know, I, I invite you to bring your whole self to this time and to this space. And so if there are emotions, if there are experiences uh, that you relive because of what we're talking about, again, just invite you to bring your whole self. If you need to, you know, if you cry, if you need to leave for a little bit, um, that's fine. And, and for the rest of us who that don't, aren't touched in that way, I ask you to honor those folks, to, to go to them, to be with them, just to listen, to pray, and also to honor them and not, and not shaming them in any way, but to thank them for bringing the, their whole selves here, their, their emotional selves. Okay, so we're going to look in the passage. We're going to look at one of the consequences for the woman and then one for the man. Let's get started with uh, one for the woman. God said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children with painful effort. Happy Sunday, by the way. Um, glad you're here. Okay, so this passage, this verse, this sentence here is uh, one of the most intriguing parts of my research. Uh, from this for this whole series and then uh, during this week and I have I realized I didn't know what I was talking about when I read this passage a couple months ago and uh, and so I've learned a lot and I want to try to share some of that with you guys today so we're just going to work through it kind of word by word so the first thing we see here is it says I will intensify this is the words of God and there's two very small details 
in these words that are very, very important for how we understand this passage, how we understand God, how we understand our world, and how we understand ourselves. So the first is this. Last week, or just earlier on in this passage, we saw that the snake is cursed. Now, cursed in the Bible, there's, it's, a, it's one of those words. Remember, Genesis 1 to 11 is giving us all the themes and all the words to read the rest of the story. So you could track this word, curse, through the rest of the story, and you will follow a, a whole thematic line. But at this point in the story, all we really need to know is that curse is the opposite of blessing. We see a God who longs to bless. That's what he longs to do. And that's what he does throughout the story. And curse is the opposite of that. And so the snake is cursed. When the snake chooses the opposite of blessing, when it goes its own way, when it becomes this chaos monster, it is now cursed in the story. It will no longer be a source of blessing through the rest of the story, but it will be a source of of chaos. Humans, on the other hand, are not cursed. That's not how they're described in the story. And God longs to bless humans. This has been the whole story from Genesis 1. He longs to bless humans in order that they would be able to bless the rest of the world. And that's the plan that continues on. Just a few chapters later, we see this happening with Abraham. If you read through Genesis 12, you'll see that the word bless is used like 20 times in a very short period of time. God says to Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to bless your family in order that you bless the world. So this is still on tap for us as humans, which doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, but it's not a curse. Okay, it's not a curse. Now, secondly... Um, when I think about the consequences in this passage, or when I did, I used to think, I'd think about this passage or the consequences much like I did uh, with my parents giving me consequences when I was a teenager, which happened on the regular, I think we could say. So an, a, a very example, uh, normal consequence that I would get, I would come home, my parents would say, be home by 9, that's your curfew, and I'd be like, absolutely. And then just consistently, 9.15, 9.30. So um, I've been late my whole life. Um, If you can help my wife understand that, that it's not just something I do now to her. It's always been true of me. Um, So I come home 9.15, 9.30, and then uh, my parents would be like, oh, you're late. So you have a consequence now. No, you're not allowed to use the car for the rest of the week. And I would be like, come on, guys. Like, that's mean. First of all, me coming home at 9.15 doesn't hurt you in any way. Right? It's just an arbitrary time that you chose. It doesn't actually matter if I'm home at 9.15 or 9.30. And so what I felt like with my parents was that they were just being arbitrarily mean to me. There's no natural consequences to me coming home slightly late. My parents are just putting arbitrary, mean consequences in there, which I think is the job of a teenager to think. Okay? And I, I would say I, passed, I approached this passage with a very similar mentality. It's like, oh, this woman ate an apple... And now every woman for the rest of the history of the world is going to go through excruciating pain when they give birth to a child. Like, that's just not nice. That is mean. It's not natural. It's arbitrary consequences. And so God in this passage seems to me like almost like a Black Mirror Oprah, where he's like, and you get a consequence, and you get a curse. Look under your chair. It's a curse. Cursed are you. And you're just like, oh, man, this seems just so mean. Why would God do it this way? But these few words, I will intensify, they challenge that view that I had. What it's saying here is that God isn't just doling out random consequences. Rather, there are consequences. There are natural consequences to the actions of the humans. And God is doing something different, which is he's intensifying them. And that's very different. But that is what we read in the narrative. Again, verses 1 to 6 in chapter 3, the humans fail the test. Verse 7, 
they realize they are naked and they cover themselves. There's natural consequences. God doesn't do that to them. He's not in that part of the story. So there are natural consequences to what happened. And that is very different than what I thought about this passage. And it changes, again, how I think of sin, how I think of God, and how I think of the world. I want to dig into this a little bit, because I think that many of us actually share this perspective on God. That he's just out there waiting to give us consequences. Like, you know, I thought of my parents as a teenager. So I'm going to try to um, explain this with an example. So stick with me for a few minutes. I'm hoping this makes sense at the end, but it might seem a little odd at the beginning. Okay, so let's imagine I come to you after the gathering, and I say to you, you know, you look really good today. You, look, you just look especially good. And I'm doing this in a very non-creepy, non-sexual way, okay? That's very important. I know by saying those words, it makes it creepy, but just imagine with me, okay? This is a fake scenario. So I come to you after the gathering, and I say that to you. And you might think, oh, well, that was kind of nice. Might put a little bit of a pep in your step for the rest of the day. Um, but imagine instead of me coming and saying that to you, and again, in a very non-creepy way, um, imagine someone that you really admire comes and says that to you, okay? Someone that you think of as like the epitome of fitness, of style, of good looks, okay? So like there's the snake, there's me, there's normal people, then there's this person here, okay? That person walks in this building, Afterwards, they make a beeline to you and they say, man, you look fantastic. You look great. And you're like, oh, little old me, you know. I, oh. And they're like, I actually love to partner with you to release like some beauty products into the world. I think you would be a great partner with me. Now, here's the thing. No matter how you felt this morning, maybe you just rushed out of the house. Maybe you threw on your oldest clothes. Um, as I see some of you did. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but but you, no matter how you felt this morning, you will walk out of this place with your head held high. And that will probably keep you buoyant for weeks, maybe even months. And you know what? Other people might say other things to you. Like I might say, ah, oh, you don't look that good. You, know, you, could, you could lose a few pounds or whatever. And you'd be like, you know what, John? You're here. <laughs> Beyonce, or whoever you're, that's my style icon, okay? I don't know who yours is, but it's like, Beyonce thinks I'm great. Beyonce came in here and she blessed me. She wants to partner with me to release beauty into the world. Okay? So, why does Beyonce's words have more weight than mine? Because she's a queen. She's an icon. And so I'm just like a whatever pastor, right? Of a small church in Vancouver. And so in the language of the Bible, she is more glorious than me. Her words have more weight than mine do. So here, here's where this meets our story today. Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to introduce us to a character in the story. It's not just any God. It's not just any Elohim. It's Beyonce God. That's who it's trying to introduce to us. Yahweh Elohim is this all-powerful God. He just speaks in Genesis 1 and the world is created. You know, all the rest of the stories at that time in, in the history of the world, it's these gods, they go to war with each other, they have to rip each other open, there's these huge battles. Yahweh Elohim, no battle. He just speaks, and the world is created. The Leviathan, which is this huge beast of the sea, which would be, uh, you know, cause fear and trembling to any of us mere mortals. For God, it's just like a big fish. It doesn't matter to him at all. He is the king above all kings. He is the center of the universe. He is the gravitational pull in our solar system. And he looks at humans, he looks at us, and he uses those same words that he did to create the world. And he says, when I look at you, what I see is very good. 
what I see is very good. I want to partner with you. I choose you as my representatives in this world. And this is supposed to carry a massive amount of weight for us. Because it's not just anyone who's coming and saying that to us. It's Yahweh Elohim. And so other people might say other things about you. You know, you're not that valuable. You're not that great. And what we're supposed to say is, oh, but Beyonce has blessed me. Yahweh Elohim has come and he has pronounced these words over me. And they carry me into my life. And so here's, here's what's going on. When we choose not to listen to God, when the people in this story choose not to listen to the words of God, they are taking the power out of those words, the words of his blessing. If God is supposed to be at the center of our solar system, what they're doing is they're saying, actually, I'm going to switch that around. I'm now going to remove you. Not that God is less powerful, but those words become less powerful. I am now taking the place in the center of the universe. And our society, like currently, calls that freedom. Oh, what you're doing is you're getting rid of, you know, religion and all of the, you know, straitjacket of religion and all of, all of the, the terrible things that come with that. What you're doing is you're freeing yourself. There's no God, so there's going to be no guilt in your life. You're free. Put yourself at the center of the universe. And what the Bible would say that does to us is, is we remove the source of blessing from our lives. We remove that voice that tells us who we are. We have no one left to say, oh, you are good. I see you and I see that you are good. And what we're left with is ourselves alone at the center of the universe asking, am I good? Am I enough? Am I okay? And so what we have is just millions of people asking that question to each other. Am I okay? Can you please bless me? Because you can't bless yourself. That's not how it works. And so rather than living out of this unshakable identity that's given to us by Yahweh Elohim, which allows us to live open-heartedly with other people, to live vulnerably with other people, or in the words of Genesis 2, to be naked and unashamed, what happens is when we put ourselves in the center, we move from having to just be a good creation to having to be God. That's a different kind of pressure. And so under that pressure, we cover ourselves up. We hide our vulnerabilities rather than share them with other people. We are unable to be open and free. And other people become not just other humans that are also revolving around Yahweh Elohim. They become competitors. They're not partners anymore. And I don't think you have to be a a Christian to see that this is the way that our world works now. I think we just have to look inside of our own lives to see that this is part of the way that we view the world. And the Bible would say this is a natural consequence. A natural consequence when we choose not to allow God to be at the center of our universe, when we make ourselves God. And so in this passage, that's exactly what's happening. The consequences have already started way back in verse 7. And God is just ratcheting them up. He's just turning them up here. Now, Again, I want to just say something very specific to us before we move on. I think as 21st century educated, you know, technologically savvy uh, Vancouverites, one of the things that we can do inadvertently is that we we hear places when we, uh, in the Bible, where God says to us what he said to the, the man and the woman. He says, don't do this. Don't live like this. Live like this instead. This is the way to follow me. And we look at some of those passages in the Bible and we think, you know what? There's no natural consequences attached to these things. I'm just going to go and do them. It's fine. I have a friend. He does them all the time. No consequences. He's just living his life. It's great. 
And we think often because of uh, where we stand in the biblical story, we're like, and God will probably forgive me if I screw up. He's, that's kind of his job, I think, actually, to be gracious and forgive. And here's what I would say. God is gracious and God will forgive. But the Bible is actually really, really clear. There are always natural consequences when we don't walk in the way of Yahweh Elohim. And God, actually out of his grace, will always ratchet those consequences up. And you might ask, why? Why does he do that? Let's save that question to the very end. Very good question, but let's save it. Okay, so we're three words in, 20 minutes into the service. Great, fantastic. Let's get going. So God will intensify. What, what is he going to intensify? The word that's used here is pain. Now, a reminder of what we just said. The natural consequences of the people walking away from God, choosing the snake rather than God, would be pain. That's what the story is saying to us. God is ratcheting it up. The word pain is used twice in this sentence. The first word in Hebrew is itzabon, and the second word is etzeb. Now, these words are like synonyms. Um, uh, they're very, very similar, and they can refer to physical pain. So if you think of the word, like it's called the semantic range, the, the, the totality of what a word can mean, a part of that would be physical pain. But the large part of it, the rest of it, often refers to emotional pain. That's what it's, Etseb usually is talking about. So words like grief or hardship or distress might be more appropriate words here. So where does God intensify the grief for the woman? Now, our translation says in labor and bearing children, which again sounds, they sound like synonyms. Basically the same thing. But digging into the Hebrew, this is where I had my mind blown and it changed my mind about what this passage means. The first word here is the Hebrew word haron. Haron. Now this word, importantly for us, is never again, it's used several times in the Bible, it is never again translated to mean labor pains. Never. Let me give you two examples of, of how it's translated. Let's first look at Ruth 4 says, Boaz married, there's, or sorry, I'll just say this, there's a progression here, you need to pay attention. Boaz married Ruth and slept with her. And then the Lord enabled her to Haron, and then she gave birth to a child. So Haron is something actually that happens before giving birth to a child. And then it, uh, Hosea uses this language of, of pregnancy for a group of people. It's a metaphor. Ephraim will be like a bird. They will value what fly, will, or what they value will fly away. Again, there's a progression. It's backwards this time. They will not bear children. They will not enjoy pregnancy. They will not even haron. They will not even haron. So this word does not mean bearing children. It means conception, conceiving a child. Now, uh, we may have some people here today who don't know what conceiving a child means. And um, I, unfortunately, um, for you, I can't help you because I was homeschooled during those very critical years of uh, sexual education, and so I can't help you. From what I have pieced together in my life, um, when a daddy bird uh, loves a mummy bee, uh, the birds and the bees, they get together, uh, and I think they call a stork. Um, it gets really foggy for me uh, after that. But uh, you can ask a, 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 a trusted adult what that word means afterwards. But that's what this word means, heron. It means conception of a child. So it's very early on in the process. Now, the second word that's used here, yalad, it does refer to physical birth. But it can also refer to the time after that. It can refer very generally to raising and rearing children. 
So if this is correct, this verse is actually not describing the physical pain. It's describing something bigger, emotional pain. And it's not describing a single moment, the physical pain of uh, bearing a child, which is how I often read the passage. You ate an apple, therefore uh, giving birth is really going to suck physically for you. That's not what it's saying. Here's what it is saying. Listen to what Hebrew expert Ian Proven says. If we take our lead from the meaning of these words elsewhere in the Old Testament, Genesis 3.16 refers to the agony, the hardship, the worry and anxiety, all these emotional pain words of the circumstances in which children are conceived, in which they're carried, in which they're born and raised, and in which they die. This is totally different than what I thought. And if it's true... Uh, it describes something very different. I thought, again, it was like this moment in time where women would have to deal with the physical pain of birth, which I'm told is very difficult and physically painful. But this verse is actually referring to something much bigger. The emotional and physical pain of the whole process, including raising children. And this changes a lot of things for us, if it's true. It makes, for me, one of the first things this does is it makes a lot more sense of why this is a consequence and why God ratchets up this consequence in this passage. Let's remind ourselves of what the human job description is in Genesis 1 and 2. We are to partner together with God, but also with each other, in order to, as Genesis 1.28 says, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. According to Genesis 1, this is part of the blessing of God. And that means that we partake in everything God has been doing. We are able to bless the world in many of the same ways that he does. So he creates image of God. We are also, as humans, able to create images of God. We are able to reproduce. This is why God created them male and female. I'm not trying to say anything controversial there. This is just the understanding of the passage. This is the blessing of God. So what would be a fitting consequence when the humans choose not to be images of God? and rather be in the image of the snake. Well, the fitting consequence would actually be, if you're not going to choose blessing, then you should be cursed. That is not what God does. Very important for us to remember. He rather turns up the consequences. He says this beautiful capacity that you have within you to create new life is still going to be something that's beautiful and still going to be something that's amazing. But it's also going to be a place of etzeb. It's going to be a place of, of deep pain. And that's what we see with the humans, that they already start, that already starts for them. They cover themselves up, they don't give themselves fully to each other. And this is also exactly what happens in the rest of the story of the Bible. If you continue reading, you'll see that almost every generation is impacted by the consequence, this consequence in some way, shape, or form. Here's, here's just a short list of some of the women who are impacted by this verse. The first set on the, on the left are women who are unable to conceive, Rachel, Hannah, and Sarah. The middle section are people who lose children or die in childbirth. And the right-hand side are women who have the agonies, they display the agonies of raising children. I've been reading in um, Exodus recently the story of Moses and his mother. I just can't imagine, you know, we've, I've heard that story so many times, but I've allowed myself to sit in it. Could you imagine if you gave birth to a child? Again, this time of joy. And then because of the Pharaoh in your life who is portrayed like a snake, portrayed like a serpent, they have to give this child away. And it says she puts it in an ark, in a boat, and she sends it down a river. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the, the etzeb of that situation. 
Or Naomi, who is, who is Ruth's mother-in-law. She has grown sons, but they both die. And she says to her daughters-in-law, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. It's Etzeb. And while this poem is, in this poem, God is speaking very specifically to the woman here, the, the story of the Bible shows that it's not just women who deal with this consequence. And women have a very specific and unique role in childbearing, and, and I am not at all attempting to minimize the pain or the privileged role that women have in bringing new images of God into the world. But in the rest of the story of the Bible, it's both men and women who bear this consequence. Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Let me just give you a few examples. Jacob, at the end of Genesis, he loses his son. He thinks he loses his son, Joseph. And they come and they tell him, your son is dead. And they try to comfort him. And he says, I will not be comforted. My son is dead. I will go down to Sheol with him. I'll go down into to the lowest parts of the earth with him. David, one of the most important figures in the Hebrew scriptures, he weeps and he fasts because he thinks he is going to lose a son, and indeed he does. Later in his life, he has his favorite son, Absalom, who turns against him, and he cries out to him, Absalom, Absalom. It's these same words that we've seen God saying, eat, 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 eat. He's saying in, in pain, in etzeb, Absalom, Absalom. And Absalom eventually dies, and it causes all this pain in David's heart. Job, in the story of Job, all of his kids die in one day. And so he puts on sackcloth and sits down in ashes. He's a broken man. And so everybody is affected by these consequences. And and interestingly, God is also affected by the consequences of this story. When when he comes himself in the form of Jesus, um, he both transforms this calling and participates in the grief, the etzeb of what's happening here. You know, Jesus is, is portrayed in the Gospels as the true human, as the one who we were all meant to be. And so you would think, if he was a true human, he would have physical children. He would reproduce. That's, unless that part of the Bible was ripped out for him and he didn't get Genesis 1, this is part of the story. But yet that's not what happened when Jesus comes. He doesn't have any children. The Bible emphasizes that. But at the end of his life, in Matthew, he gives his version of it. He transforms the calling of being fruitful and multiply. He says this, go into all the world and make spiritual children. Disciple, draw people into my family, invite them in, and help them to grow into my children to become true humans. And therefore, he extends this invitation to all of us. Every single one of us is invited to be fruitful and multiply, whether we have physical children or not. This is the highest calling of the Christian life. But Jesus says this too will be shot through with pain and etzeb, with grief. At one point in his life, Jesus looks out over the city that he loves, and he says these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Absalom, Absalom. It's these words of of deep grief and etzeb. And then he uses some very interesting words. He says, I want to gather your children like a mother hen would gather her brood under her wings. It's these mothering words, but then these terrible, difficult words of etzeb, but you were not willing. Jesus knows that etzeb the difficulty, the grief of for being fruitful and multiplying. And so this task of humanity that we've seen in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and to multiply, which brings the highest highs of life. Um, I could tell you, for me, one of the, the, 
most high, the highest moments of my life is that we, we have three kids, so we had twins, and that was just anarchy in the hospital. Um, I, I, I remember sort of what happened, but it was all a bit of a blur. And then we had a, a single, a singleton, it's called, a daughter, which sounds like something that you might wear, but it's a, it's a person. And, uh, and my daughter, when she, she was born, I got to hold her for like five minutes. I don't have words to describe to you how full that moment was for me. I will never forget it. That I somehow partook in, in creating this life. Um, I've also had the great privilege of introducing some people to Jesus and, and watching them take the first steps towards him. I can't tell you how meaningful those moments were to me. It'd be, it would be like if Beyonce came in here, honestly. My held, my, I was so buoyant for like a month afterwards that these friends of mine had said yes to Jesus. But I also know the pain. The pain of someone very close to me lost, lost a child. I know the pain of that. And I know the pain of what Jesus is talking here, to see friends, family members who have said, oh, we're not willing. Jesus reaching his hand out. And they say, we are not willing. So this, this invitation to be fruitful and multiply, that we have this unbelievable honor, still does provide these moments of great joy, but there will also be mixed in with grief. That's what God is doing here. Now let's hop down and look at the matching consequences given to the man, and we won't be near as long on this one. I'm just going to walk us through the passage. Verse 17. God said to the man, Because you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat. Remember these words that God said in Genesis 2. The first words he has in the story are, Eat, eat, eat. Like I said, like a grandmother coming, you come to her house, and she's like, Oh, eat, 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 eat. God says, Yeah, you'll still eat. But instead, it will be from means of painful labor all the days of your life. These are the ratcheting up of the consequences. If you want to be God, do you want to be the creator of your own world? If that's what you think, that you think you can stand in that position, then okay, let's see how you do. And work, which was always part of God's design for us, he's always called us to use our time, our energy, our talents, our efforts to partner with him in the world, is now going to be characterized by Etzeb. Exactly the same phrase that's used for the women's pain. So again, it's not just physical pain, although that's included in work, but it's about emotional pain. It's also identity pain, and we might think of it as existential pain as well. The grief of, of working as a person who is driven not by abundance, by, but by lack. By this idea that in this climate, with this inflation, I may not have enough. It's the pain of lacking vocational direction. It is the pain of putting in day after day after day and feeling like you're not getting anywhere. That's it. Verse 18. The ground will produce thorns and thistles for you. Again, if we recall back to Genesis 2, what has God created? He's created this beautiful garden with all these trees, with fruit. That's his provision for us. That's blessing. But now what do we have? Thorns and thistles. And you will eat the plants of the field, it says, Note, the field is not in the garden, in the story of Genesis 2 and what it's creating. The people are about to be kicked out. It's foreshadowing that for us. And then verse 19, it says, you will eat bread. Bread, again, is one of these words in the Bible. There's one of these metaphors that you can track throughout the whole of the story of, of, of Scripture. It is this amazing picture of the human job description of what we're supposed to do. See, bread is that you take the things that God has given us. You take water, you take uh, the dirt, and we don't destroy it. We don't just have dominion over it. We, we, we work with it. We plant seeds, and that creates wheat. And out of that wheat, we learn how to make flour. And then we partner with each other. We share 
how we might learn how to make bread. We rely on our community to one another. And then we are able to make this thing called bread that we can share that brings people around a table, that we can have fellowship. It's this amazing and beautiful picture of what we are supposed to do as humans, that we partner with God, that we partner with the land, and we partner with each other. And God says, oh, you'll still eat bread, but it will be by the sweat of your brow. It won't be happening in partnership with Yahweh Elohim and in his strength, but on our own strength. If that's what you want, if that's what you, you choose, then I'm going to ratchet up the etzeb in that area. And then it says, you will eat it by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. That work in life itself will now be feel often like an exercise in futility. See, we were made for the sense of moving forward, not in a market capitalism way where we just like enlarge you know, our share of the world or enlarge our territory like the prayer of Jabez, but that we work with God and we work with each other and we work with his creation to increase his effective rule over the world, that heaven would come to earth. This is the prayer of Jesus. This is the vision of what it means to be human. But instead of living in that story, what we'll live in, the story we'll live in now because we want to be gods is that just, you know, today is just another Monday. I'm just going to work to grind. Or that you'll feel the weight if we move ourselves into the center of the universe trying to be gods. We will feel the weight of that when we do our work. All of that will weigh on our bodies. And this is the story that we see in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. If you read on, we won't take time to note all the details, but what we'll see is futility and famine, futility and famine, futility and famine. And then you'll meet a family and you'll be like, oh, these dudes seem pretty great. And then they fail at their tree. More futility, more famine, more exile. And just like the consequences to the women don't stay within one gender, the consequences here don't just affect the men. I'm not a historian, but my understanding is that when there's famine, uh, it's not just the men who starve. I don't know. You might want to fact check that one, but uh, that's my understanding. And in this time, the women would work alongside the men in the fields. The Proverbs 31 woman, who is kind of the epitome of of a womanhood in in some cases, is a business owner. I'm sure she experienced Etseb in her life. And I, I think we could probably just do a straw poll here. Is there one woman who has experienced at least one part of Etzeb in their work life. No one. Okay, so it does just affect the men then. It's, this affects all of us. It's not just one gender. that this, And that's how sin works in the Bible. It, it never stays contained. Gareth will touch on this next week. That's not the way that it works. You can't contain it. It always grows past what you think. One of, uh, an author that I read says, it's a superorganism. Sin is. It's always growing, always morphing, always changing, always affecting way more than you thought. And that's exactly what's happening here. So, where does this leave us this morning? Well, every sermon that I've preached in this series, I've kind of tried to do the same thing, which is we go to the passage, we try to look at it in its ancient Near Eastern context, and then I try to pull it forward for us in like just one way that might affect us. And sometimes that's pretty hard. And I'm like, hey, there's not a snake at your house, but uh, maybe this is a way it affects you, or there's not going to be a tree with fruit that you're going to see. Um, And so sometimes it's really hard to pull this passage forward into our lives. Uh, But I don't think this is one of those passages. At least that's not my sense. Um, And I can relate. I can relate to everything that's happening here. I've experienced in my life. You know, we have uh, three kids, as I mentioned, but we also... Uh, before we had kids, we're on about a three-year journey of infertility. Um, our family knows what that's like. 
And I can say that uh, my journey with my vocation, especially being in full-time ministry, which was never the plan, um, has, been a, has been a hard journey for me. It's been filled with, with Etseb, mostly because of you. If you're thinking it's because of you, it's because of you. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just saying I, I understand um, this in my own life. And I know be, being part of being a pastor is that I have the great privilege that people share their stories with me. And so I, I have the great and unbelievable honor of sometimes standing up here and saying, oh, we've had a new image of God join our community. Maybe someone became a follower of Jesus or maybe someone had a baby. And it's an unbelievable honor and privilege. And sometimes we do these things called child dedications where I get to stand up here with a family and I get to introduce this child and we pray for the parents, we commission them, and then we join them, we stand and we join them as a community and say, we will support you in your efforts to be fruitful and multiply. But then I also get the honor of standing with people in sadness and anger and grief and lament when people want to have families but they can't. Or they feel like they need to choose between their careers and their kids, or they lose a child, or they say goodbye to a parent. And I get to cheer you on in the various places that you go and you work. It's amazing to me from this small group of people that we go into all over places, all over Vancouver, um, all over the lower mainland, really. And you take the blessing that God has given you and, and you are able to take it into those places to be salt and light there. And some of us are even able to do that in the rest of the world. Um, that's just basically Keith. Keith is just going all over the world and taking salt and light. The rest of us are staying here. But I also then get to be brought in on all of the stories of uh, difficulty in work. When people get laid off. When people are dealing with directionlessness in their vocation. The tensions... Uh, of the workplace. And so I think most of us know, we've, we experience this today. It's pretty quick that this story comes rushing into our living room. So the question is just, what are we going to do? What are we invited to do about it? And I just want to say two things here as we close. The first thing is that we're invited to keep reading. That's really what Genesis 1 to 3 is inviting us to, that there's a whole, there's a whole bunch more story to go. And these two storylines, um, especially as we move towards Christmas, really... Uh, take a, have a focal point in two people, or two sets of people. The first is Mary, the mother of Jesus, who gets to be a mother and bring life into the world. And not only life, but she gets to bring the, the Son of God into the world. She partners with God in a very unique way. It's an amazing privilege. But at the same time, that story is riddled with Etzeb. She People think the wrong things about her. They have to go on the run because... Uh, people are trying to kill her son, and then eventually her son dies. And I think there's more in her story than I can say in a few minutes. And so it's just an inv- invitation, if you are feeling the consequences of that, to read her story. To read her story. And the second is for those of us who, who don't have kids or are dealing with vocational um, difficulties, di- vocational etzeb, I encourage us to look at the stories of Jesus and Paul. You know, they were single guys. Single guys who are trying with all of their lives to bring to be fruitful and multiply. And they know both the blessing of that and they experience that in their stories, but they also know the curse of that or the darkness of that. And I think we can find a lot in their stories if we read in, and I encourage you to do that. But I want to close by taking us back to the very beginning of this story. And remember uh, that God, at the very beginning, he said, I will intensify. That's what he's going to do. And I, I said, there's a question of why there, but I asked you to hold on to it. Why would God intensify these 
pains in our lives. And at this point, we might want to say, why, why, oh, why, oh, why, God, would you do this? And here's what I think is happening. You know, God, like I said, he still wants to work through humans. There's no plan B for God. He's always committed to working through us in order to bless the rest of the world. And so when the people fail in this location, in the garden, they've created a new normal. They're sent out of the garden, as we'll see, but they've placed themselves in the center of the universe. Things are not the way that they are supposed to be, and God knows that this will lead to disaster. This will lead to, to grief, and there will be consequences that spool out all over into the world. And so what God does is he turns up those consequences. He turns up that grief in order to try to make life very uncomfortable for us as humans. So that maybe listening to the snake won't look like such a good thing for us. So that maybe trying to be gods, trying to be the kings and queens of our skull-sized kingdoms won't be something that's so alluring. We'll see not only that we'll see the dark sides of that, so that we might see that when we become gods, it's not freedom that we get, but it's slavery. That's how the Bible looks at it. That we become people who aren't free just to do whatever we want, but we're actually underneath the boot of the serpent, of the snake, of the chaos monster in the world. And so God turns up the natural consequences so that we might see the world in its truest light. That's what he's trying to do. That we might be able to see that we are stuck and we would come and confess to him. That's the biblical language. Confess that we've put ourselves at the center of the universe. And I can't, I'm not a God. I can't bless like Elohim. I don't belong here. And that we might cry out to him, God, come and take your rightful place at the center of the universe so I can partner with you, you can bless me, and I can once again become human and be a blessing to the rest of the world. And, and finally, that we might learn to hope. We might learn to hope that one day, as this passage says, God will act. That from all this grief-filled process of multiplication will come a seed, will come one, who can crush the serpent's head. And he will also experience the grief of that by being killed but he will free us from the curse and allow us to be vehicles of blessing once again. That's the story that's being set up, and that's the story we try to live into every Sunday when we come here. And so we invite you now as we respond, as we give, as we pray, as we sing, as we come forward to take Christ's story as our own, to engage in those things, to confess, to repent, to cry out to God, and then to come forward and learn to hope together. Let's pray as we close. God, a hard passage today um, from your story. We, we remind ourselves once again that it is not the whole story, but at the same time, we do want to sit in it and remind ourselves of the places that we inherit these consequences, um, remind ourselves of, of those who uh, very acutely are feeling those things, and also remind ourselves of the places where we fail at the trees of our lives. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would convict, as it says in the Bible, that you would do, that you would write us to turn towards you, to teach us how to cry out, and also that you would make Jesus' stories front and center here today. Teach us how to hope, teach us how to look at him, and teach us how to put him back at the center. So as we respond, we give you this time and pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.